calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tananarie do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, oh, here we are. Woo! I feel their excitement. I mean, I know we say this every single time, but what a podcast we have lined up today. Our guest is none other than Stephen Graham Jones, which is so incredible. I can't wait to get to him. Great that he can make the time. Really great that he can make the time. And Steve, you and I are in uh, separate spaces and we've, you know, we, we've had a couple of things going on in the net in the past few days. So why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on? Let the congregation say amen. Amen. Yeah, God, you know, the last couple of weeks have been kind of, you know, compressing the end of summer, you know, compressing a month of summer into into two weeks or less time (laughs) with our time out in Long Beach at the beach house and then going to Indianapolis, which was an amazing experience because I really was. I, I not only got to talk about my relationship with Ray Bradbury, but to be around people who have a, a really deep academic appreciation for him as well as an emotional appreciation. But I'll tell you honestly, and one of the things that was really great was the time I got to spend with Charles Johnson, who I, yes. I dearly love and is one of the best and smartest people I've ever met. 
And it's just so much fun. Just, you know, banging ideas off of each other. That's, that's wonderful. And there's a video of the entire thing that we might figure out a way to make available. I'll probably send, I think I sent it out to the people on our mailing list. Well, tell people your mailing list. So they yeah, can Stephen, StephenBarnesList.com. There it is. StephenBarnesList.com. You know, we will, we'll, we'll send you a link to the, the video. And it was just, it's a wonderful, I guess it's partially just feeling that this time in my life, I'm I'm really feeling in alignment with my own self, my own heart, my own values. And you when you do that, one of the, the unexpected side effects is that you you're going to lose people. You know, people who who don't feel simpatico with who you are becoming. Don't like the path that you're on. Good people. You know, so it's like, all the more meaningful then when you can run into someone like Charles Johnson where it's all just Right. There. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, to not just run into him, but to be able to deliberately design, you know, it's like, oh, he wants, you know, they want the two of us to go out there and they're willing to pay good money for it. You know, I I, do, I would have done it for free. For the Don't episode. tell them that. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's true. Out with, you know, but my my agents and managers won't let me do that. So, <laughs> so, so don't try it. <laughs> I would love to give a special shout out to Jason Alkerman, who is the director of the Ray Bradbury Center there in Indianapolis. If yes. you have not seen it, they have recreated Bradbury's basement office with original artifacts, even a stuffed cat <laughs> sleeping in one of the chairs. So it is really incredible. And I also spoke during a talk back after screening of Horror Noir at a theater that they also put that together. So what an amazing, an amazing time. Honey, you know, actually listening to you talk to Charles Johnson really reminded me of when I first saw you at Clark Atlanta University. I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, that's it. That's the guy. That's the guy I saw at that first, at that first. Well, you knew that after 25 years, he'd probably pop up again one day. (laughs) No, no, no. It was really, I think it was just because uh, it was such a special audience and they were so appreciative and the information that you were that you and and Charles Johnson were relating was so important and anyway so great so great so That's congratulations great. and i don't know i'm i'm Going here in and this i as, as far as i'm concerned summer ends this saturday midnight and i'm back on track with the star wars novel and back on track with with other projects and can't wait until you're back home. You'll be back home uh, tomorrow night. Yeah, I decided uh, we had a layover in Atlanta. And I decided that rather than take that flight home with you and Jason, I would stay in Atlanta for a couple days to help my sister with our 88-year-old father, who's just been home for the, from the hospital for a few days. He's getting stronger every day, but it can be a lot. And so I get to be big sister and help out and feeling really good about that, but really also can't wait to see you either. And um, I'm just eager. Let's I, go. Let's go to our. I'm guest. sitting I don't on my hands. Yes. I'm sitting on my hands because let's I cannot this. wait to bring in our y'all. Just don't even know. I've I've met Stephen Graham Jones before. We were co guests of honor at the Horror Writers Association a few years back, so that was kind of fun. 
But since then, what a ride for you. He is, is the, is the Ivina Baldwin Professor of English and, and the, as well as Professor of Distinction at the University of Colorado Boulder. Just saw you tweeting about how beautiful Boulder is, and it absolutely is gorgeous. The author of several novels and short story collections, that's an understatement, <laughs> including Mapping the Interior, My Hero, Mongrels, The Only Good Indians. A few of you may have heard about that. That won a Bram Stoker Award. My Heart is a Chainsaw, and the new book, The Sequel, Don't Fear the Reaper with the birth of the first Indigenous final girl, beloved by readers Jade Daniels. He's also had nearly 300 short stories published from literary journals to truck enthusiast magazines. And he's one of those people whose bio is so long that we really don't even have time to get into all of the amazing things that you've done. But I love that you got your PhD at Florida State University. Hey, Tallahassee, I was born there. Welcome to the show, horror writer extraordinaire and someone I can't wait to talk to, Stephen Graham Jones! Hello! Man. Well, thank sometimes, y'all. Thank you. Sometimes thank they y'all. get started and it's hard to <laughs> shut them up. No, it's it's cool to be here. I feel like I'm behind the curtain. Like I've only listened to y'all before. So to be on mic with y'all is pretty cool. Thank you. <laughs> here we are. Here's our setup. <laughs> show only works because of guests like you. Oh. And, and share we, what's going on. I I saw you recently. Lucky me, I was on a panel with Stephen Graham Jones and Lee Bardugo. This is where I met Lee, Steve, Mm because we just had her on the podcast. So I'm with these two titans, right? And, you know, and I don't say that to take anything away from myself, but it was kind of funny because afterward there was a signing and I had my little line, you know, I wasn't unhappy with my line, but then I got to pack up and go home. Man, being between Lee Barduco and Stephen Graham Jones, it was just so fascinating to no. watch the way the audience just adores your work. Just absolutely. And you've been out there for a minute. Like, is it true you had published 20 books before The Only Good Indians? So I don't even know the numbers, but yeah, my first novel was 2000 and... I did a whole lot of books before Good Indians, for sure. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you are a sensation. What is that like? And Mm -hmm. how are you dealing with that? (laughs) You know, I always, I heard an interview from Boris Karloff's daughter, I think. Someone asked her, you know, after her father was hitting it big, or like long after he was gone, but they were asking about the moment when he hit big. And and I said, what was that like? And she said, yeah, he was an overnight success after 41 movies, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And I always, always appreciate that. But, you know, the trick with like, no, it's, it's great to have a lot of people reading my stuff, but it was also great when there was 10 people reading my stuff because I just love to write. I love to 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 hide on the page, you know? And I'll tell you the truth, if I go, if I do something... If people start hating my stuff and I go back to 10 readers or whatever, then I'm still going to be pumping out just as much stuff just because that's what I do. That's the only way I know how to how to converse with the world is through fiction. Beautifully put. Well, that would explain why you're so prolific. <laughs> is there any consistent other than just saying this is who I am or this is what mm-hmm. I think the world is? Is there any consistent thematic thread in your work? The thing what is the, the core creative impulse? That mm-hmm. expresses itself in hundreds of different works, but if you yeah. were to try to get as close to the core as possible, what do you think it is? You know, I do think that all writers probably have one, maybe if they're lucky, two stories in them, and they just try to 
they they take them into their mom's closet and dress them up in different ways and trot them out and say, look, it's different, but it's the same story, you know? Right. And I feel like that's what I do. And I think the story I tell the most in all kinds of guises is a father-son story, you know? that That's what I'm always dwelling on or, or focused on or coming from. I'm not sure what the proper like prepositional phrase is, but, but yeah, the things to me, if I, it, like, if I don't pay strict attention, everything becomes a father-son story, you know? Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Right. In my case, I find everything becoming a grandmother, <laughs> grandchild yeah. story. So I have to be yeah. careful about that. I know yeah. exactly what you mean. I mean, I yeah. think that the, the basic tropes of our lives, the basic human experiences you know, are so universal that if you go deeply enough into the specific, you end up with something that everybody can understand. And yeah. then that can carry the freight for any number of different stories or genres or whatever. I totally, I totally agree. And I think that if it matters enough to you, then you can get it on the page in a particular enough way that it's like a real thing on the page, you know, and that, that activates for people when they read it, I feel like. Can you give me an example of, of that? Can you choose a story that you think really uh, exemplifies your creative process? Yeah, probably one of my better known stories, Father, Son, Holy Rabbit. It, it's from my collection, The Ones That Got Away, I think. Is that the title of it? Yeah, I think that's the title of it. And it's about a father and a son on a hunting trip. The son is maybe seven the and they get hit by a snowstorm. And so they have to like live under a tree out in this, the whiteness. And it's been days and days and they're starving. And and the father is trying to figure out he the father doesn't care if he survives as any father wouldn't. He cares about whether his child makes it out of the woods, you know. That that's that's kind of kind of our job. That's right. And and so what links will he go to? What what how much of himself will he sacrifice to guarantee his son's survival? And at what cost will that survival come for the son? You know, and I wrote that at a time when my son was probably five years old, I bet. No, no, I think he was six. And and I could see a day coming that I was going to take him out in the field after elk. And I was so impossibly thrilled by that because my dad had been taking me out for elk since forever. And his dad would take him out out for elk forever. It's just what we do in my family. And and I could see that coming. But I was also scared because I'm a complete idiot in the woods as far as navigation goes. I get lost 10 feet inside the trees, you know, mm. and I don't I don't trust compasses because I, I think. I think directions are situational. I don't think that they're absolute, but evidently they probably are absolute. I just don't really subscribe to that. <laughs> so, so I knew I knew we were going to get lost. And sure enough, we got lost. But by the time I took him out in the field, he was 14 years old, I think. And he was about as tall as me and pretty capable. So I was the one who was more in danger than him. I was going to say he probably <laughs> helped you. If it was like our son, he probably yeah. helped you find your way out. Yeah. Like, yeah, come on, yeah. man. It's this way. So. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that if father-son relationships comes up often, that's because that was a core positive aspect in your life, not because you had trauma or... or... Well, I I had a a whole lot. I'd have to sit here for a while and count how many, um, like, stepfathers and father figures I had growing up, like... We moved every few months. Like my, my novel Mongrels is, I consider it like autobi- autobiography because that's my life just with werewolves. It's a it's a novel about people moving from town to town in Texas. They throw all their stuff in trash bags, lob it into a horse trailer and drive to the next place. That was us. You know, we mm-hmm. always went to a new place and I always had a new dad and I always had a new name too. So every school I went to, I would be the new kid for, two, you know, for however many months and, you know, having to get in fights on the playground and all, all the stuff that happens. And then I'd move on to the next place and be the new kid again. But what was wonderful about it, and I've always wondered if this is a point at which I became a writer of some sort, was 
this was back before you transmitted your school records digitally. You carried them with you in a manila folder from place to place. And my mother started letting me edit my school records while we drove and I would change my name and I would be different people at different schools. And that was really fun to just have a completely new self, you know? Your mom sounds amazing. That's so yeah, cool, actually. Yeah. No, she's that she's great. So yeah. Fun. yeah, yeah. When when we were at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, obviously mm-hmm. you were there promoting your new books and your mm-hmm. love for slashers. And I have to ask you to go. I know you've been talking about slashers for a very long time now, mm-hmm. which, and I don't want to run it into the ground. But part no, of no. your origin story there had to do with a. a, a fateful trip to a like a truck stop bathroom oh yeah yeah, C- yeah. could you tell that yeah, sure. story and also sure. where it led because you kind of cut it off when we were on the panel <laughs> yeah sure no problem and and it's you, you can run slashers in the ground somebody will just shove a rod down there and lightning will strike it and they'll come back so it doesn't matter <laughs> but boom 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 where's my where's yeah. my sound effect yeah. <laughs> yeah. did that <laughs> yeah. yeah oh yeah but no this is i'm probably i don't know 20 years old or so and i'm and for some reason, I have completely forgotten the reason. I was driving a big old beast of a car from Texas up to Washington State, maybe. And it was a last minute thing. I think I was delivering the car for somebody, possibly. And I used to be great at driving for 30 hours in a row. It wasn't any big deal. And I think that's why I took this on. I probably wouldn't even get paid. I was just doing it for the adventure. And and I had taken off so fast for this trip that all I had on was shorts and a sleeveless shirt and some flip-flop sandals. And, and as I was saying earlier, I don't understand maps and directions. And so, of course, I got completely lost. And this was well, well before Siri and MapQuest and any of that stuff. And even if I would have had maps, it wouldn't have helped because I don't understand them. But and I, I'm way <laughs> up in like a really flat, dry place. And it's just quite it's quite it's really bleak. It feels like like Mad Max land, you know, and I see a low truck stop kind of wavering on the horizon. I direct myself over there, go to the payphone. And um, put my quarter in and call the operator. And I ask her, I don't even know if I had to put a quarter in to call her, but, and I say, Hey, can you tell me where I am? And, and she explained to me how it was illegal for her to tell me where I was, like if this was Utah or Idaho or Arizona. And, That's weird. and we, we went back and forth a while and she could not tell me where I was. And she could tell me my area code, but I had no way of figuring out the area code that went with the state or area or whatever. And so I finally said, well, thanks. I'll just keep driving. And so after that, I stepped into the men's restroom and, you know, rest stops, they don't want to pull a lot of electricity. So they try to use natural light in those big places. And this place had like walls that went like, I don't know, three quarters of the way up. And then it was open air. No, it was mostly open air. So the sunlight could come in and so the place could breathe. And so I walk in there out of the bright daylight and my eyes aren't adjusted. It's really dark. And I get about halfway across the bathroom and my feet are sticking to the floor. And I'm like, oh, it's that kind of place, you know, because we've all been in restrooms <laughs> like that, of course. And yes. so I was walking gingerly and I went over the urinal. And by the time I was coming back to the sink, my eyes had adjusted better and I was able to look around a bit. And I saw what was on the ground was blood. Like the whole floor of the restroom was covered in blood, like almost lapping over the edge of my flip flops. And so I walked really carefully. <laughs> And the stalls were all closed too. And I, I stood there and I looked at the stalls and I thought, do I, do I, don't I? And I decided I don't. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and so then I, I walked out and as I passed the trash can that was by the payphone, I dropped those bloody flip-flops in and just kept driving. 
Oh my wow. gosh. So you never I, found out even where you no, were, much less what had happened. I, I never found out, but I mean, it was too much blood for a person, you know? I mean, we, we only have like what, eight pints in us. Is that right? And, and this was like somebody had, had like a steer or something. I don't know. It was just a lot of, this was a big bathroom, you know, probably like six or eight stalls and a whole wall of urinals. And, and it was thick blood the whole way through. And it, it did you? I yeah. would assume you wrote this into a story. No, I've done it in an essay that got published somewhere, but I've never written it into fiction. No, I'm I'm kind of spooky about stuff, you know. Like a lot of a lot of my friends, they include me in their novels and their stories, which is great and an honor and super fun. I never can return the favor because I feel like words have power. Like I'm I'm with Alan Moore on that. I think stories are magic and writers are magicians. And I'm really afraid that if I put someone I actually know in a story and like kill them for fun that what if it really happens? How am I ever going to write again? You know, I I'm with you on that. I, you mm-hmm. know, in my second novel, I had some parents experience a, a catastrophic loss. Let's just put it that way for my soul mm-hmm. to keep if people haven't mm-hmm. read it. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think I would do that again. I know, that was before I, I had kids. See, I didn't yeah. have any kids. I wasn't yeah. married. It was just words, but now yeah. you're right. It feels kind of like these stories are an incantation and yeah. now I'm not drawing that energy to my level. It does. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I and did I, see, did I see today that My Soul to Take is in its 41st printing? My Soul to Keep, yes. My Soul to Keep, yeah. Sorry. No, yeah that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, what's funny is when I got the email from an editor mm. at, at Harper Voyager, where I haven't mm. been at Harper for a very long time, I mm. misread the heading, and I thought he was saying that it was out of print, like it was a courtesy <laughs> email. And yeah, I was like, well, that, yeah. well, that's cute that they're yeah. informing me, because uh, usually you just go to Amazon and find out the hard mm. way. But uh, instead, mm. he was telling me that it was in its 41st printing. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. That's super cool. I have to get myself that one because yeah. But your 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 love for slashers has led you. This is where we have to to make sure that our our publicist that we share doesn't get (laughs) mad at us. (laughs) Sydney, Sydney, Sydney's the best. She's the best in the world. Great. But we you have two books out. A lot of people are talking about. My heart is a chainsaw, and Mm. also its sequel, Don't Fear the Reaper, Mm. with. The Final Girl, Jay Daniels, which if people mm-hmm. haven't read them, I've only read the first, so I haven't gotten to the mm-hmm. second one yet. Mm-hmm. But she, like you, has an encyclopedic knowledge of slashers mm-hmm. and puts it to use in the story. And what do you want to say about what that experience has been, creating mm-hmm. Jade, seeing the reaction to Jade, and, and are slashers alive and well right now? <laughs> I think the slashers are definitely ascending and I think that the reason they're kind of on the rise, they're they're connecting with people. People are engaging the slasher story. 
I think it has a lot to do with like we watch the news and we see people at podiums doing truly terrible things and just walking away because they're entitled. They've got money. They've got immunity, whatever it is. And we're like, wait, wait, you're running the world. You're running society. You're breaking politics. You're messing things up. Yet you're getting you're just walking away and laughing. And what that does is that primes us to want to engage a media that um, puts up on a pedestal a fair world or a sense of fairness. And slashers, they're brutal for sure, but they are fair. You know, if you do something wrong, you are punished for it. And so I think that, yes, the slasher is hot right now. And I think it's, I mean, it's not just scream. I think it's so many things happening. You know, there's so much good happening in slasher land. And yes, it, it has been so cool to watch people connect with Jay Daniels. It means everything to me. Jay Daniels, she's like my secret heart. Maybe not so secret anymore, I guess. And I'm so lucky that she found slashers in junior high because if she would have found like tennis or small engine repair, I'd be screwed because I don't know enough about the tennis or small engine repair. But luckily, I know a lot about slashers, you know? That is so great the way you talk about her, you know, like she has her autonomy (laughs) from you. (laughs) And you're just lucky that she turned out the way you wanted her to. Yeah, well, that, that's how you know. That's how I know a story is is happening right is when the characters become separate and independent of me, and they start making their own choices, and I just kind of am following them and writing it down. That's when things are cooking, you know. Has that always it, been it, true for you in your writing, or is that something you, you developed? Know, at the time? It's something I developed my first probably five years, probably from like ninety four, ninety five until two thousand, maybe even like two thousand one or two thousand two. I think that I was like. A Ouija player and the characters were my planchette and I was like secretly pushing them here and pushing them there and because I knew what I, this, I wanted the story to do and so I just nudged them this way nudged them that way and that doesn't to me produce an organic um, story experience you know I think story like all plot is to me is when you get to the end of a story and look back along the chart of where everything has gone it's a chart of the character's decisions you know and so I learned to follow the character's decisions instead of making them follow a path that I had carved out for them. That's, That's great. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our, our mutual love of slashers segue mm-hmm. <laughs> led us mm-hmm. all to the Crystal Lake uh, proposed series that w- had a writer's room right before the strike. Steve and mm-hmm. I were lucky to be there in person. You almost were there, but couldn't mm-hmm. quite make it. Why not? It's because I had Don't Fear the Reaper coming out and I needed to go on tour for two weeks. And those two weeks were, I think, like week two and three of the writer's room. And right. and I had already told Saga, our publisher, that, sure, I'll go on tour however long you want me to. It doesn't matter. I'm totally free. And suddenly this Friday the 13th writer's room popped up. And I felt like I would be not disappointing, but more like betraying the publisher if I stood them up, you know, and if I stood them up, why would they want to invest in me next door? You know, I mean, it's it's great. It's fun to be in a writer's room. It's it's good to produce wonderful stuff, of course, but you also need to hold fast to your obligations, I feel like, you know. That, sometimes you have to let mm-hmm. things go. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I passed yeah. on a writer's room and that show just dropped. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm watching you- it. Yeah, I'm watching a show right now that I was invited to be in the writer's room and it's a good show. And I'm j i am I know the people in it and yeah, I, I, you can't do all the writer's rooms you get invited to, I don't think. you know. Well, I mean, isn't that a great position to be in? But you were yeah. able to serve as a consultant, which was nice yeah. to, to get your notes. And so mm-hmm. you were kind of a part of it, even though you oh, were. Yeah. What was that process like being a consultant on the show? 
I would get sent files like, you know, the the assistants in the room take all the notes and kind of organize everything. I would get sent, sent that and I could reply narratively and I would create documents and send them to Brian and they would make, I guess they would make their way to you. I never actually knew what happened to them. I would try to send him both the PDF and the document such that if he needed them, if I was wrong in whatever I was saying, he could pick and choose what got forwarded, you know? I think I he just mess. sent the whole thing to everybody. Okay. Right. <laughs> I think that's what happened is he sent the whole thing to everybody. <laughs> and we definitely did discuss your notes and, and, and yeah, talk about yeah. your notes. So that was great yeah. that you were kind of there. And also we should mention our fearless leader in that room was the one and only Ryan Fuller, who is such a mm-hmm. favorite of ours. So that was really when 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 we heard what he was up to, I said, Well, you have to talk to Stephen Graham Jobs. That was like the first <laughs> name out of my mouth. So <laughs> I'm always you. happy to be able to recommend people. You know, yeah. I feel like yeah. I just got my foot in the door, but if I can drag someone into or someone yeah. who's already on that path, because you've already been doing screenwriting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, Steve, are you yeah. gonna say something? Well, I was just gonna going to say that if the if the show was already on the air, then we'd be able to ask more specific questions about mm-hmm. what Stephen, you know, said said to them. But I think that it'd be greater discretion to to not even go down that road. Mm-hmm. No, the less said, the better. Yeah. And, and plus with the strike, I mean, who even knows, frankly, but where we left things, you know, we had we had broken the first season. So we'll see. What happens if people have a chance to write those scripts and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Looking mm-hmm. forward. Hope it gets on the air. Hope it gets yeah. on the air. Hope, hope there's too. life I, after. I would like to, uh, I'd like to know something about your process. Yeah. You know, from the time that you have an initial thought about writing a story to the time that you complete. Can you can you walk us through the steps that you that you go through on a project? Yeah. Let's see. How about, I'm trying to think of a standalone project. <laughs> I only get Indians. Maybe that that may be the last. That's not the last standalone. That's the last standalone novel I did, though. I guess that's no, a good one. Of, okay, I'll do the last. The only get Indians. Um, yeah, people. What, what happened? What happened was I had written Mapping the Interior, a novella for Tor.com. Ellen Datlow. I think that came out in 2017. And and Ellen said, you know that that novel, that novella did pretty good. Won some awards and all that. So why don't you give me another one? And Mapping the Interior took me four days to write. And I thought I got four days. I can steal four days. And so I sat down. <laughs> I sat down to write a novella and four weeks later I had a novel and I was like, that sucks. And so what? I pushed it to this. Yeah. And so I pushed it to the side. And I said, wait, oh, how many I'm... weeks did he say? Four weeks? Four weeks. Yeah. That was four weeks. Wow. Was, that was the babysitter lives actually, which came out from Saga. And, and then, so I pushed it to the side and I said, I'll deal with that later. And I sat down to write a novella and bam, 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 four weeks more. I had another novel. I got carried away. And, <laughs> and, and that was another one that's already sold to Saga. And, and I thought, this is what is up? Have I lost my novella muscles? I don't know what's happening. And so this time I sat down to write a story and I gave myself a rule that when you hit 115 pages, it's over. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a sentence or what. And so I did that. I wrote bam, bam, bam. I got to 115 pages, which is the first big part of Lillingham Indians, the house that ran red with Lewis and Peter living in Great Falls in that rent house with Harley the dog and some sort of elk menacing them. And I got to the end of it and I was like, yes, I remembered how to write a novella. And then I accidentally thought of an, one more line that would turn this into a novel. It would open it up. And I was like, oh, dang. And so I called my agent up, BJ Robbins, and I said, hey, I just wrote a novella for that novella, Datlow at Tor. Should I keep it a novella or should I turn it into a novel? And she didn't even skip a beat. She said, turn it into a novel. Those are easier to sell. So I sat down and turned it into a novel. And and as for where the idea for that came from, I mean, 
Probably two or three places. I mean, what Gaiman always, Neil Gaiman always says that like story ideas come from a convergence of things, you know, and this was a convergence for me as well. The first one would be that back in 06, this is 07, I guess. Yeah, 07, I was up on the reservation hunting elk and I got a big cow, got her processed, turned into packets of meat, brought her home to Texas where I was living at the time. And then everything was great. And when I take an animal in the field, I always promise to them that I'm going to use all of you. This wasn't just for sport. You know, I'm not being mean. I'm going to eat you. I don't think that makes it any better for the elk. I think they still did not like this day, you know, <laughs> but, right. but never, it, I think I just do it to make myself feel good. Um, but I try to hold those promises either way. And I would, but, I would think that reverence for the taking mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. It's necessary to maintain sanity as a moral being and also to, you know, memento mori, to remind yourself that you're part of that cycle, too. I um, hope so, man. I hope I, so. I think, I, it's, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's real right there. So. Yeah. No, I mean, I hope when the aliens come harvest me, they use all of me, you know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, but then suddenly, three months later, I was moving to Boulder, Colorado, and, you, and I was going to be um, effectively homeless for three months over the summer in which I was going to be living on relatives' couches with my family and stuff. And I, you can't carry a freezer full of meat with you. So I put it all in some duffel bags and went up and down the street I lived on in Texas. And I gave it away door to door. I said, hey, I have an elk roast, have some elk sausage, have some ground elk. And everybody took it. But over the next decade of living up here in Colorado, I couldn't stop that voice in the back of my head from whispering to me that one of those people I gave that elk roast to they closed the door, watched me walk away, and they turned around and threw it away or fed it to the dog or something, and I, which would mean I'd broken my promise, you know? Mm. So I was living with this guilt of having possibly broken a promise, and that finally expressed itself through the story of the only good Indians. But as for where it started, as I was saying, I owed Datlow that novella, and I had no idea where I was going to go for this novella because I'd used up what I thought were my two good ideas, and those both metastasized into novels. And so... I had been up on a ladder, this ladder you see right behind me, actually. I'd been up on that ladder in our living room of a house we were renting, working on this light that would not behave. And I thought, maybe that'll be scary. So I just wrote that scene of a dude up on his ladder. And I thought, what could he see if he looks down through the fan blades? And I and I have like elk hides and elk, elk antlers all over the house. And I just, I thought elk, you know? And that's how that happened. And there's actually a third place. I know this is a long old answer. No, no, I'm loving this answer. All the time this. that you want. I love this. this. Yeah, people come to this podcast. <laughs> Go for it. Right. The third place that uh, only Canadians came from is back in probably 2015, maybe 2016. I was out in LA for something at a big, like in a banquet hall type place. And I got, it was like, you sit here, you sit here kind of thing. And I got seated with an entertainment lawyer. And I, I just like opened I, my, I was so thrilled because I don't ever get to talk to entertainment lawyers. I get to talk to agents and editors, but never entertainment lawyers. And, and I really wanted to write two novels. I wanted to write a Three's Company novel and a Friday the 13th novel. And so I started like working my way into a conversation with him and asking him if I could write a, what would be involved with me doing a Jack Tripper novel. And he let me down easy, but he told me in no uncertain terms, I could not write a Freeze Company novel, that I did not have permission. I couldn't make money on it. All these reasons I couldn't do it. And I said, all right, I'll just do Friday the 13th then because I can do a really good Friday the 13th novel. He had the same reasons I couldn't do that because I don't own that hockey mask. you know. Right. And, and, and I was like, and so I left that banquet or whatever it was thinking, you know, I can do it. I don't need his permission to do it. All I have to do is not use the hockey mask. And what I wanted to do was take Jason up to the reservation, see how he would, he would fare against us. And so I, I thought, I just have to change his mask. And the first mask, again, that I came up with was an elk head. And so that's 
where like the the slasher parts of this story came from. I was trying to do a Friday Thirteenth story, but I needed a different mask, and so it was an elk. Stephen, I first of all, I love everything about that story. You don't know how much I love that book. You know, of course. It's like with Jordan Peele. I love all of his movies, but Get Out was the one that like was mm-hmm. the first one. Ah, and I, that's the only good Indians for me. It scared me when you were even talking about the latter. Mm. Because <laughs> I'm thinking of the fan blade. He somehow makes fan blades scary. It, it's 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 bizarre. But I'm so yeah. thrilled for you. And and I wanted to just segue into like a, a little bit of a, a conversation about marginalized, so-called marginalized mm-hmm. horror. Even mm-hmm. as you were describing your your covenant with the elk. It reminded me of something I say often in interviews, which is that I think one of the reasons Black horror, Indigenous horror, queer horror is having such a turn in the sun with mainstream horror fans right now is because of that that novelty of the difference. Like, I've never mm-hmm. been hunting. I mean, Steve knows mm-hmm. I've watched like a million episodes of Naked and Afraid, and I've, I've learned to mm-hmm. appreciate hunters in a very different way. But I've never been hunting. So mm-hmm. from the first time I open this book, I'm in a different place, a different world, characters that are coming from an, an entirely different culture. And yet I'm totally there in terms of their humanity, their their motivations, their fears. Why do you think that that so many readers are responding to your work in particular? My work in particular. Tied to my, or tied, especially not just that they're great stories, obviously. Like, let's Uh, take that for granted. But uh, from the standpoint of of writing about difference. uh I think, I I don't think people would articulate it like this, but people who like pay attention to the world understand that we need more empathy, you know? And we need to quit us and dimming the world. We need to, it needs to all be us and, and we don't need to objectify anybody into them. And I think that this, I don't know if it's a recentering of these, these, um, what were outsider stories or if it's just a shift in focus. I'm not sure what the dynamic is, but I think that these kind of stories are ideally helping the world work out their empathy muscles a little bit, you know? Um, mm. I mean, in the first place, I think a horror story needs to scare somebody, but if if it can do that, that's a, if it can do B, C, D, and E in addition, that's wonderful. You know, right. can you um, be scared for someone without empathizing with them? Yeah, that's a good question. I can't, I, I think, I think empathy super, super helps. That's like kind of Stephen King's secret weapon. I feel like, and all his stuff, yeah. you know, but, but I think, yes, I can think of one book. What is it? The the death of Jack Sparks. I forget the writer's name. That book. I do not like that protagonist even a little bit. And we don't have to like the heroes, the protagonist, of course, but I'm like actually opposed to him. He is super annoying. He's part of a, like a internet culture that I don't understand. I don't have access to. Nevertheless, that book terrifies me pretty fundamentally, you know, just because of what it says about the possibilities in the world, that the world might be bigger and deeper and darker than I've ever suspected, you know? Isn't that a great feeling when something really mm-hmm. gets under your skin? I mean, the only oh, good Indians yeah. totally did that for me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Oh, it's the last days of Jack Sparks, not the death of Jack Sparks. Okay, I guess that's the last a, days. That's a spoiler. He might die. <laughs> Question for you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's kind of clear talking to you mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. as as is true with all artists who are operating mm-hmm. at a high level that the majority of your skills are at what they call unconscious competence. You know, it's mm-hmm. the boys. Stephen King calls them the boys in the basement. You're not mm-hmm. thinking about the pieces as much yeah. any, any more than a, a concert pianist is looking at their fingers. 
that stuff is all kind of in there. But one mm -hmm. thing I do notice is that you speak a lot about deep emotional states and fear and anxiety. So mm -hmm. my sense is that you don't have a lot of armor. Um, mm -hmm. So you allow yourself to feel life. Mm -hmm. So that implies to me that you have a spine and you, you kind of know where you are inside yourself, then expose yourself to the world. So the question I have mm -hmm. for you is how do you maintain your balance? If oh, you're going to yeah. make yourself vulnerable Mm -hmm. life and you, you watch political things and you have this mm -hmm. and you feel for the elk and this and this and this and fathers and sons how do you how do you maintain space for your heart for your soul within the context of your life and your art yeah that, that's 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 the question I, I totally agree and I, like if i have to give a definition of an artist it's someone who walks around and, with their heart exposed and rubs it on the world you know and that you're not going to be Nice. Yeah, you're not there's there's your quote honey <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> but but you're right and that that i think that's why a lot of artists end up with substance abuse issues and just yes. behavioral behavioral issues because they're trying to it, it walking around with your heart out is not pleasant not always pleasant you know yes. making yourself vulnerable like that it can lead to a lot of heartache a lot of pain just a lot of bad stuff but that's how you access the art so you got to do it the only so how do you protect yourself. The, the only way I've ever found to protect myself is to to see the joy, to to not forget to laugh, you know, to smile. And that's been the most helpful thing that I've that I've ever found. You know, if I like um, like it, we're talking about balance, you know, like I do, I'm a I'm a full-time professor. I've been doing that since what, 2000. And I feel like I've been a full-time writer since 2000 as well. That's when my first novel was published. So I'm, I've been two full-time people at the same time. But like I give myself a rule, I say if there ever comes like a string of two months where I can't go out and ride my bike whenever I want, or I can't take bubble baths, or I can't read the books I want, then I've got to consider dropping one of these. And the only one I can drop is professoring because I can't stop writing. You know, I'm, I love, I love being a professor because it feels like cheating. I get to go into rooms with smart people and talk about books and writing, you know, and that is just the dream. And they keep me, they keep me connected to the world. They, they tell me all these new terms and they introduce me to new artists and stuff and left to my own. Like, I feel like, I feel like my impulse is to, if they're the, if life is a train, I get off at my stop, which has like Bob Seger and Rockford files and I'm totally happy but the train keeps going without me, you know, but the, the students, they got their hands up and they're pulling me and they're saying, what about Adele? You know, what about, what about this, this, what about Mayor of Easttown? Like, and, and, and without my students, I think I do kind of become untethered and just start writing Bob Seger and Rockford file stories, which isn't bad, but I don't know if that's going to connect with the world, you know? How about hunting? When you go out into the yeah. woods to hunt, is that, mm -hmm. is, that's a centering thing for you, isn't it? It is a little bit. Uh, I like being out past any cell signals. I can't get emails prompting me to do things or oblig oblig obligating me to this or that, which is quite nice. But the reservation is getting more and more connected too. So, you know, there's fewer and fewer um, places where you can't get signal at some point. But yes, it does feel really good to be. I think what feels good about it, less than the isolation, is being out there alone where your survival is dependent upon yourself you know and so there's something about that that is restorative i'm not even sure what it is but it feels well, good part of it is that you have memories of having done this with your father absolutely who did it with his father who did it with his father so you're connecting yeah. to your bloodline you're connecting to the yeah. earth in that sense this is that's that shit's real yeah right? it is it totally it's is sacred right. for you. you you pray yeah. to the elk 
that you will respect the elk and think about the fact you gave away that meat but still felt guilty because somebody might have given some of it to your dog. That, yeah. You're not playing games. That's mm-hmm. that's real. That's your spirituality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I totally think, agree. I think that's what came across in the novel itself was that mm-hmm. it was so real, you know, that that it's not just a scene that feels like it could have happened, but that mm-hmm. your experience was just poured so much into the novel that your heart, even though it is a scary effing book, <laughs> your mm-hmm. heart is there throughout throughout the book. So that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think you've got it, that you've, you've got to put real emotion on the page, whatever your genre is, you know? And I mean, it's easy to tell a mechanical story that processes through all the necessary beats, but what's hard is to sneak some, not just sneak emotion onto the page, but sneak it onto the page in a way that the reader will feel it without even wanting to feel it, you know? And I think that's why I, why I gravitate towards horror is because horror I think horror and probably erotica are the two genres that can make you feel things. I think most of the other genres, they invite you to feel things and you kind of sign like a contract with the genre, with the writer that I'm going to feel the sense of awe from science fiction, or I'm going to um, feel love from this romance or whatever. But horror, like I can watch a horror movie or read a horror novel and tell myself that line of dialogue was clunky. That's not a real character. Or I saw the zipper on the monster suit. That's not a real monster. And that's all well and fine until three in the morning when I'm walking down the dark hall to get a glass of water and it becomes real in a different way, you know, mm. and I love, I love that horror can do that to, to, to me and to readers, to audiences. Are you, if, if I was one of your students and mm. I asked you, how can I, what would you suggest I think about when it comes to engaging the reader's emotions? I want my mm. reader to feel fear. How do I do that? How do you, mm. what would you say to that student? What I always tell them, cause I do get asked that is, you have to write about what is terrifying to you, write about your own nightmares. And because you can't like look up a list of what are the things we're instinctually scared of, like drowning, fire, isolation, all that stuff. Exactly. Um, Yeah. yeah, Those are scary, but like, like an example of that would be a nightmare I have persistently. I've had it for years and years and I don't think I understand it is I fall down some basement stairs and at the bottom of them, I'm, I'm not knocked out, but I have hurt my arm. And I raise my arm up into the light and I look at it and it's kind of broken open, but inside it's not blood and bone. It's white like tofu, you know, and that is just mm. fundamentally terrifying to me. And it's probably a specifically native fear. I'm afraid I've been like assimilated, acculturated or something, you know, that oh. I'm, a, that I'm that, yeah, that I'm an apple. I'm right on the outside, but on the inside, something like that. Mm. But, but I wrote that into my novel, the babysitter lives. That's, that's the, that's what happens to the protagonist in there. she, gets cut and and this like shrimp meat bulges out you know Ew, and, um, shrimp meat <laughs> well you know i, I think that I, i'd love the opportunity to, to kind of follow that just a little bit because uh-huh. you know, part of both your success and your struggle would have to be connected to your ethnicity uh-huh. and so i was wondering whether you have any insights into what it is that if, if I were to talk, if I were talking about black issues, there'd be uh-huh. some things that are are consistent that I could talk about that might be surprising to white people uh-huh. or only black people. What uh-huh. what would you consider it might hmm, the the ways in which it has impacted your life being Native American? Uh-huh. How have these things filtered their ways into your work in terms of kind of the Kind of the isness of it, the the, the world, mm-hmm. the cosmology of it, the the humanity mm-hmm. of it. How do you see what? How do you see that shift? 
Yeah. As opposed to like the average typical white person. You know, yeah, how are you um, different? You know, the, there's a couple of different things I can say. One is that I've never in my life been in a convenience store where I don't feel the clerk watching me in that mirror up in the corner. You know, it's because of because of my skin, my hair, because I maybe have a wallet chain or whatever it is, you know, and I always know that they expect me to steal something. And right. that that expectation from like the world does sculpt who I am and the art I do, you know? And so I feel like on the page, I am always, I'm both expressing that and pushing back against it, I hope, or showing the fundamental ridiculousness of it, you know? But at the same time, sometimes if you get watched enough for stealing something, you're going to steal something, you know? The world, Absolutely. The, the world's expectations can turn you into what they fear, you know? Yeah, might as exactly. well be hanged for cheap as a lamb. Especially, yeah. you know, it, yeah. is, it is since yeah. and one of the things that you mentioned that I thought is, is is one of the painful ones. You're talking about being an apple. Asians can talk about being a banana, and black people, mm-hmm. of course, Oreos. Mm-hmm. My if favorite white, nickname from elementary school. If white people mm-hmm. get to define what whiteness is, and to a mm-hmm. certain degree, what they're really defining is what it is to be an American. You know, mm-hmm. speaking yeah. this way, living this way. It's not yeah. whiteness. But if they can, if if you can be deceived into thinking that speaking or being in a particular way is the other, as opposed to just being human, then you can be at war with yourself. It's, yeah. it, it, there is that doubt. You know, do I yeah. speak this way? Do I dress this way? Do I do this to to please white people, or because yeah. I'm trying to be white, or is this just? I think that's cool. I don't do everything white people do. I do who I am. I do these things that they don't do. So what what does that make me? But that Uh fear of not having a tribe, not having a people, having roots, stepping away from how as you you've mentioned the reservation many times. Uh My assumption would be that your family is very proud of you. Uh But have you had negative responses to to your success in the white world? Yeah, that that's the fundamental problem of being a native artist who finds success is that you feel like you're a traitor at the same time, you know? And I'm oh. and because success in one world like success is measured differently in different worlds, you know? Yeah. And so, so how is so success you, measured in within your within that the native world? Kind of basically being a good Indian. But what that means is being an important part of your community and revering your history, your traditions and all that stuff, which is wonderful and great. I don't mean to to bash that even a little bit. That is great stuff. But at the same time, when you step out into a more public stage, part of that process is a lot of your corners get rounded off for consumption by the world, you know, and, and, and it, it, you become like a different, like marketing turns you into a different version of yourself, you know, you still know who you are inside, but you also know how you're perceived. And um, and that's definitely a weirdness. And I think a lot of native artists struggle with that. They also struggle with, am I speaking for my whole uh, people or am I speaking for myself? You know, and I think it's most important. Yeah. You don't want to do damage, but if you try to be the voice of your people, you're always going to fail. I feel like you, you can be the voice of your people by being really specifically and particularly yourself, you know, as a product yes. of your people. Thank yeah. you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I can't be all black people and no one mm-hmm. gets to tell me what being black is. I am mm-hmm. my experience yep. of it. And there are ways, in, you know, in that sense, society and success in society is a Procrustean bed. 
you know, mm-hmm. that that you, you get pieces of yourself cut off to try to fit into a mold. And there are times when you can have so many pieces cut off that you start forgetting what you were. You start yeah. forgetting what you were when you began yeah. the, the journey. How do you, my, my guess is you've already told us some important things. Mm-hmm. It, it, I'm going to make a guess that if you felt like you were losing yourself, mm-hmm. you'd go hunting an elk. Yeah. And in the process yeah. of this of this sacred ritual, which has been providing you know, life to your family line for mm-hmm. you know, since the beginning of time, mm-hmm. you reconnect with something that is real, and the mm-hmm. rest of it you get to kind of laugh at a little bit. A little bit, that's true. And also a way that I find that I connect is if I go out and be the stupid person I was at 16, and I jump my bike over a car or something, you know, and I'm like, I'm still myself. I still, they haven't taken that away from me yet. Oh and, my gosh. it it often lands me in the emergency room but i was gonna say but i land in the er as myself you know and i think that that feels so good (laughs) yeah i mean absolutely that's funny this is that's 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 real sorry the audience was slow on that one no matter what you do somebody's going to tell you that you're being a fraud yeah no matter what you do someone is going to say it's not enough or it's the wrong thing Mm -hmm. you should be doing and if i could Go ahead, please. Steve. I just wanted to jump in here. That's, you know, just sort of in a real world application in terms of Hollywood and screenwriting and writers rooms. Once we get things going again, I think mm-hmm. one of the fundamental misunderstandings that a lot of showrunners had was, well, if we have one black person in the room, we're covering it. Oh, or we no. have one woman in the room. Oh, no. That's yeah. why, even though this was a very small room, I was very excited that we had not only you there as a consultant, but we did mm-hmm. have a, also a writer from Reservation Dogs and a poet. Mm-hmm. Tommy Pico mm-hmm. was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Steve and I, don't agree on everything. Not everybody's mm-hmm. going to agree on everything. So it's just mm-hmm. good to have all the different perspectives. And yes, we yeah. are not all in lockstep. And that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I think it's great. Like, you know, an example of that not being in lockstep, I was in Denver the other day and we were, I was with someone who is white and we were walking across a road, like in a crosswalk and there was a truck coming and this white person I was with, they stepped right out there and I was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> And I, and I realized that the difference between us was I know that I'm disposable and they think that they're not going to possibly be hit, you know, and that's a, that's a yes. huge difference. That's a, that's a big difference in how you navigate the world. And if yeah. you don't have a diverse writer's room, then you're going to miss so much of that subtlety, you know? Absolutely. You know, the, you've touched on a couple of things there to understand that the world does not hold you as precious, mm-hmm. that the world in some ways would rather you shut up and sit down or die. Yeah. yeah. You have mm. to find your own, way of of navigating that territory but that ties into that question of feeling like you know who you are that's not very different from knowing that you have the right to be here yeah. knowing that you that you have as much your survival drive is as powerful as anyone else's you know mm-hmm. and i how how did you do that how did you connect with yourself or would you give that credit to your family, your community, such that get, when you went out yeah. into the world, you felt precious? You know, I would give that that credit specifically to my mother. She raised she raised um, me and all my brothers. I, she she desperately wanted a daughter. She never got a daughter. She got so many so many sons, and <laughs> and and we were you know we're little hellions. I think lots of lots of kids are, of course, and always getting in so much trouble. And every time we were at the 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 police station at the principal's office being held by the MPs, whatever it was, 
my mom would storm into the room and she would take everybody down. You know, it didn't matter if we were wrong or right. 99% of the time we were wrong, but it doesn't, didn't matter. She was going to fight for us no matter what, you know? And mm, if you see that, if you, if you see that happen enough times, then you realize that I think, I think I might matter, you know? Yeah. That's beautiful. So important to give your children so much love that no matter what the world does to them when they leave your house, they will always remember that they are loved by people who they respected. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that that connection right there, your dad taking the time to take you out there and teach you something mm-hmm. that was important to him, you wouldn't trade that memory for a billion dollars. No, no. No, I wouldn't. You would. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. I know. You know, I remember my dad, when I, was, when I graduated high school, my father was living in Germany with the Air Force. And I wasn't supposed to graduate high school. I had to go to alternative, like an alternative path because I got kicked out of all my schools. But he came to my ceremony and I hadn't seen him for probably two years at the time, maybe three years. And he was waiting there after the ceremony. And I said, hi. And I shook his hand. He's said, congratulations. And I said, later. And he had flown like 28 hours from Germany. And I said, hi and bye. And I left to go out that night. And, but it mattered so much to me that he was there, you know, that mm-hmm. he had got, he had taken off from work and traded in his fishing days to fly to America to come see me at graduation. And those kind of things in the moment, you don't think they mean a lot, but they lodge inside you in a very positive way, I feel like. Well, considering that you have been writing father-son stories, you think that's the most consistent mm-hmm. threat. It is mm-hmm. obvious that even if he was not always in your life, he was always in your life. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I always knew, too, I grew up in West Texas where he grew up. And everywhere I go, people would say, you're Dennis Jones's son. You're Dennis, because we look the same, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really neat to have a whole random people I'll never know understand who I am just from how I look, you know? I mean, part of it is we're the only two Indians in West Texas, of course. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that'll okay. happen. It's mm-hmm. a taking a look at the difference between, you know, white immigrants and mm-hmm. immigrants of other racial groups. And mm-hmm. let's say the descendants of slaves and Native Americans, you can see that there are different strengths and challenges, different weaknesses yeah. and opportunities for each of those groups. And I think it's really, it's such a valuable thing that you are giving your perspective to the world. To honor you, there was something you wanted to. to yeah, I just here. wanted to jump in. You know, I, I think for both of us, you know, we have work that is more concerned with ethnicity and less concerned with ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. was really excited and honored to be asked by our our editor that we share, mm-hmm. Joe Monty. Mm-hmm. To look at an early copy of The Only Good Idiot. So I actually got Mm -hmm. to read it before a lot of other people did. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted to thank you while you're on the podcast for taking the time to read The Reformatory, my book that's coming Mm -hmm. out in October. Because you're one of the few people who's read it. And the fact that you don't think it sucks means a lot to me. So uh, I I appreciate that. Man, more than that, I think it's the book of the decade. That that book, like at the the end, that, that book is a study in grinding through the terrible to get to that one moment of grace, you know, mm-hmm. I love, I love that. That just, that just makes me feel whole as a person, you know? I totally appreciate right. that. Cause that was terrible. a long, that was a long, right. That was a long mm-hmm. seven year, right. You know, I mm-hmm. guess my last sort of craft related question for you, we don't want to monopolize all your time. I'm loving mm-hmm. this. I could talk to you all day though, <laughs> is I read in an article in Esquire, cause you fancy and you got profiled in Esquire <laughs> magazine. <laughs> That you basically tell your students to, quote, write yourself in a corner and then force uh-huh. themselves to be better writers by writing themselves out of it. Uh-huh. And I was just wondering if, I mean, you did give a great example with the novellas, and that may be it. But I wondered if there was uh-huh. anything else that popped to mind where you intentionally wrote yourself into a corner and then had yeah. to write your way out of it. 
Yeah, I did like mapping the interior. There's a part in that it's probably about 35 or 40% through it where someone has taken apart, disarticulated an action figure, I think. And when they were doing it, I had no idea. I, I just need to kill some time. So I thought, let's take apart an action figure. And then, but it was a horror story too. So there's, there's things percolating under the trailer, under the house. And one of the kids gets home from school one day and one of those action figure legs, I believe, is has been staged on the porch where it wasn't before. And I, I, as the writer, I had no idea. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And because, because I like to do that. I like to periodically, like every eight or 12 pages in my story, in my novels or novellas, I throw a monkey wrench, which is just a random thing that I then have to organically massage into the story. And it changed the shape of everything that comes after. And I get, I get it. I get a lot of mileage out of that, but I'm just, I'm trusting myself to be able to follow it too. And in this case, it opened the novel up in the most beautiful way and got it to where it needed to go. And, but that the corner I was in was, I have no idea what is going on with this action figure. I don't know who put it there. I don't know anything, but I've got to figure it out. You know, that is scary. Tim Powers calls that rhythmic surprise a two-headed man with his buttocks on fire. We will we'll come running. That is, every I'm going to try that. Mm-hmm. Like, have no yeah, idea. That's Just a, that's a great throw idea. it in there. Have no idea what it means. And yeah. see what, see what, that's yeah. actually, that's actually great. Listen, I love it. You know, Stephen, this is the point in the show where we start talking about what we're doing that allows our listeners to engage with us a little bit more. And as, as you probably know that mm-hmm. on the 23rd, September, we're going to be doing our only screenwriting workshop of the year, <laughs> three-hour Zoom seminar at HollywoodLoophole.com, in which we're going to be taking, you know, every time we talk to someone like you, Tanana even I, you know, afterwards, we'll download, well, do you remember this comment that they meant? What, what about this thing that they said? This, in, in a lot of ways, this is a chance for us to talk to people who are on a similar journey Sometimes they're ahead of us on the road. Sometimes they're beside us. Sometimes they're behind us. But it's it's just the road, you know. And just mm-hmm. when writers get together, the real question is, what are you working on? What are you reading? You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, and I, we we I, haven't talked to you about this, but really, all three of us are, I assume, prose writers who mm-hmm. later took up screenwriting. And I know in my case, it was because people were optioning my work and it was getting Mm -hmm. stuck at the script stage. And I was like, well, that's dumb. I'm just going to learn how to write scripts, which was a Mm -hmm. very naive assumption at the time. But now, Mm -hmm. actually, they will pair you with a more experienced screenwriter. That's Victor Mm Laval's experience right now with The Changeling is that they paired Mm -hmm. him with someone. Uh, They will invite writers into the room. So if you're listening out there, even if you've never even tried writing a screenplay or maybe you've written a few, but you've gotten stuck and you don't understand navigating Hollywood. That's why we're offering this three-hour writer's toolbox, 10 writer's secrets to breaking into Hollywood. It's at www.hollywoodloophole.com. Everything from how do I format a script, if you're at that level, or how do I find a program that will do it for me? Well, to- the first hour is just going to be writing, you know, just plot and characterization and thematics and just just what is what is fiction writing. Then we go from there to what is screenwriting. And then we go from there to how do you create and sustain a career in Hollywood? So it's it's for people at every at every level. And I hope that, you know, there is a price, but we also because of of donations, we're able to have some flexibility in right in how much people. So do not let money stop you. If your heart is for being a writer, we want to help you. Just yeah. we will take a donation. If that's all you can afford, fine. But show up with your whole heart 
there, and we're going to have a wonderful party. I wish this had existed when I was trying to learn screenwriting back in the day, or I was really intimidated by the form because I knew so little about it. So go check out www.hollywoodloophole.com. You'll see an email address if you need to ask for a revised price. And we'll see everybody on September 23rd. That's going to be our, our big day. Other than that, thank you for sitting through that. <laughs> Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah, where can people find you? Oh, I guess I'm still on Elon Musk's site, probably until the end of the month, anyways. And and I'm over on Blue Sky, but my 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 website. Just search my name up; you'll land on my website and find me. Stephen yeah. Stephen Graham so Jones. Com. He is. is there every- any, any final thing you'd like to say? Oh, um, I'm glad you. This is so cool. You ought to do that that screen that screenplay workshop. I think. Uh, Hollywood is a mystery to so many people. You know, they yeah, they really they is. know they know where they want to be, they know where they are, but there's all these steps in between that are how do you ever how would you ever know those if you don't have somebody telling you, you know? Right. And, it, and is, that, it can it can absolutely seem like a total puzzle box. And that's why mm-hmm. Hollywood in so many ways can feel so insular and feel like there isn't access because you you mm-hmm. need that mentor who gives mm-hmm. you that break and yeah. walks yeah. you through into that's kind of what brian fuller wanted to do with us like he said yeah. you're going to be running a show one day i wanted you to have this experience and it's like oh my god how often do you get that it's rare so i don't know how yeah. do you get someone who is in the position that you want to be in looking at you and saying this is for you too mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is for yeah. you well, so i guess who was the teacher I mean, i've got to ask this question it, in all likelihood there was some teacher some mentor who was white mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who looked at you and looked at your work and said, "You belong here." Who was that? Mm-hmm. Janet Burroway at Florida State University. Yeah, she. Okay. I had a lot of really good professors. She was my dissertation director, and she. I feel like I always feel like everything I say about writing is just a watered down version of what she told me back when I was twenty five. You know, fantastic. Good for fantastic. her, and Thank good for you. So you. Thank you so much for being on Thank the y'all. podcast, listeners. Go out. I hope you're inspired because I sure am. Make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.